0: Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. Following Florence Guild, conversation was recorded live at Work Club Sydney, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. This is part one of a two-part conversation with Dom Price, the team doctor and head of R&D at Atlassian, the Australian tech company that breaks the mold. Dom talks about high-performing teams and innovation, the buzzword of the day. He will explain how corporate cultures do not promote innovation or success. So let's dissect, talk myths, and then take focused action with Dom Price. Getting out of the way of innovation, a Florence Guild conversation with Dom Price.
1: Thank you. Um, so I'll, I'll do a very, very brief intro, just so you know like, who I am and what I do, because it makes no sense otherwise. Um, and then as we were just kind of discussing, I've not, I've not bought a presentation, with me to, to take you through. I'm not going to patronize you with stuff that you don't give a shit about. Um, what, what I'd love to hear from you is some of the things that you think about, worry about, want to hear about, and, and I can share stories. Um, so I'll start with a confession. I'm a, I'm a recovering accountant. So I, um, it's true, like it's, there are days when it hurts, uh, when I'm tempted to go back. So I, I started my life in Deloitte in London, mainly because my parents said, if I became a chartered accountant, I'd have a job for life. Uh, and I thought that was a good thing until I realized that a job for life was completely miserable because it would mean you do the same thing every single day. Uh, So after three years in London, my my boss sat me down and gave me the option of moving to New York or Sydney, so doing the same job as I was doing in Deloitte, London, uh, but doing it somewhere else. And I decided New York was too much like London, so I was like, fuck it, let's go to Sydney. Uh, And when I say us, it was just me. I got on a plane. I was like, what could possibly go wrong? They speak English, kind of. Uh." (laughs) LAUGHTER There's lots of similarities, nothing can go wrong. And that was 15 years ago. So I landed in 2003 um, and just loved it here. Like what's not to love? But in that time, I've gone through like several incarnations. So my role at Deloitte evolved. I then left Deloitte. I uh, went traveling the world for a year and a half because I thought, screw it. Life experience is way more important than work experience. Uh, I spent all my money till it ran out and then realized I had to get a job. And in the meantime, the global financial crisis had occurred and no one wanted to hire me unless I wanted to be an accountant again. And I didn't. So I had to like, reinvent myself again and again. And the best part of that lesson for me is that reinvention is now just a norm for me. So I spent five years now with Atlassian. Um, when I joined, we were about 600 people, two locations, privately owned. 38,000 customers, everything just worked. To the point where, in my 90 day review with my boss, I said to him, he's like, any questions for me? And I was like, why have you hired me? Because there's nothing to fix. And the reason I explained that was, in my career up until that point, I was a very accomplished firefighter. I had a cape, I had a selection of wine that I'd been gifted for putting out fires. I knew how to tackle fires, what different fires meant, but I'd never prevented fires. In fact, I'd probably started a few, if I'm deadly honest. Because as a firefighter, to stay employed and engaged, you can start the odd fire. And you're like, oh, I can, I can put that out for you. And so he sat me down and he said, Dom, your, your job here isn't to fight fires. Your job here is to understand why all the fires have occurred in every previous role you've had. And I want to use that knowledge and wisdom to prevent fires here as we scale. So that's, that's five years ago. Atlassian's now over 2,500 employees. Instead of two locations, we're across eight. Instead of 38,000 customers, we're about 118,000. Every one of those customers has also grown. So not just the volume, we've got more competition, uh, more everything. Right, The complexity of our environment changes and evolves every single day, which is both exciting and absolutely petrifying. Because what worked last year, we know won't work next year. And whilst that fills me full of joy and excitement when I wake up in the morning, normally about about 10.30, I'm praying for a bit of consistency. And I'm praying for a bit of predictability that just isn't there. And so that's the world that I now live in. Part of my role now at Atlassian as it's evolved is as we scaled, we realized we were gonna get fat and slow and monolithic and bureaucratic. And we'd just come off the back of winning best place to work two years in a row. And so my measure of success, I set myself two goals. We still wanna be a best place to work as we scale. So how do we scale and not grow? Subtle difference there. And then the second one was, how can I make myself redundant? How can I make it so that the thing I do doesn't need me? Because if I'm the constraint, we can't scale because there's there's only so many hours in a day. So how can I make myself redundant? Which was a bizarre goal to write down, but one that's actually led me to now. I'm in my third role at Atlassian. So I'm I'm now head of R&D. So I work across our chief technology officer, head of design and head of product. They own what we do. I own how we do it. Subtle distinction. So as we scale and grow and things change, I own how we get there, how we stay nimble, how we keep that agility, how we keep that vulnerability and change. Uh, they own what we do, which products we ship, which customers for, what we launch, you know, what technology we use, etc. The second part of my role is how do we use the knowledge of how we're, we're evolving, and how do we take that out to the rest of the world so that every other team can practice, learn and evolve and develop. And as we listen and learn from them, I take those lessons back internally. So I spend half my time on the road with Atlassian customers and organisations of all shapes and sizes, including government, just to really test my patience every now and then to see, like, how can we as a society and community evolve the way we work? Because it shouldn't be confined to tech. Right? The fact that the, mass, the vast majority of the ASX 200 uh, and the Fortune 500 are tech companies now, right? not the old school organisations that we're used to seeing there, that doesn't mean that tech has all the answers right? It means that we should be sharing those things and actually be a bit more honest and vulnerable and listen and learn from each other so that every organisation, industry, team, society uh, gets to progress. And so my role now is both how do we work, how do we stay innovative at scale, uh, which is its own challenge, and then each time we do that, how do we share that message externally so everyone gets to benefit? Uh, we're, we're amongst friends, right? Trusted environment. Um, so in Atlassian, we, we didn't have anything to unlearn. So So I got started drinking the Atlassian Kool-Aid, and you get like a year in. And I'm like, oh, you know what would be really awesome? If I go and tell stories to everyone about how cool we are. Uh, don't do that. Right, it makes you a complete tosser. Because I'm arriving at these giant companies going, it's really cool being here, and we do this, we do that. And they're like, fuck you. Like, yeah, yeah it's like, oh, Jesus. Um, and so what, what I had to realize was, because we've always done it that way, we've had a certain level of momentum. Essentially, that doesn't mean that you can't copy our model, but you can't copy, cut, and paste it. What you can copy are the philosophies. And so when I share the philosophies with people, they're like, oh, okay, that that makes sense. So one of our philosophies is there's no such thing as the lone genius. Innovation exists in everyone. Um, The fact remains that most of us have had it kicked out of us, either by an arsehole boss or a parent or a relative. Like someone's basically at some point said to you, you're not a creative type. You're better off being a doer. That thing that you're good at, just do that. And, and your you blinkers come in. You forget, you, you, you forget that we're all born creative and we all get to express that at a young age and at some point we grow up. And so one of our philosophies is innovation exists in everyone. Therefore, how do we create the space, the time, the freedom for everyone to share that, whether it be right or wrong? Um, we, we, we put a lot of essence on the power of cognitive diversity. So if you want to innovate, do not surround yourself by like-minded people. Again, a mistake I've made, first, first time I had to innovate, I'm like, gonna get the boys round, have a few beers, talk about some football. We get on really well, we are the least innovative, actually the most dysfunctional group, because we, we think the same. So the first thing is, it's in everyone. Second thing is, it's cognitive diversity. So how do I get non-like-minded people around? And then this, the third thing is the realisation that cognitive diversity is really hard. It feels like a tax. Because the people don't agree with you and they don't think the same way as you they probably use a subtly different language different background experience fucking frustrating so you have to be willing to actually invest and so for me what i've had to learn is that when i'm in that environment whilst i might have a great idea if i hold on to that idea too much it's to my detriment and the team's detriment and the organization's detriment so i have to not only be willing to be wrong i have to assume i'm wrong but still be passionate about my idea so the balance I've drawn, I st- stole this from um, uh, the author Dan Pink, I-, I got to meet him a few months ago, and he said, argue like you're right and listen like you're wrong. And I was like, yeah, no, I argue like I'm right and I listen like I'm right, so that's, that's probably where I'm going wrong. And so f- for a more established organisation, how can you still get that point across but-, but actually get the right people around you to innovate? Um... The other one for larger organizations, or even more traditional organizations, and I, I, I'm not going to make light of this because I think it's the hardest thing you can do as a leader, certainly as an established company, uh, is unlearning. So unlearning is something I've been reading about and learning about, ironically, uh, recently, which is if you imagine that your, your head is a bucket, uh, mindful full of ABBA and Beatles lyrics, and then knowledge is like a poor third. And so my desire to go and acquire knowledge whilst noble is a complete waste of time. So what's the point? And so unlearning for me is saying I'm going to invest an amount of time stopping things, picking rituals and habits that will not pay a dividend in the future. I'm going to stop them now before they cost me, and I'm going to use the time saved to try something new. Right? You can't expect an organization to do that until you do it as a person. And yet most of us, when we're developing our annual plans, take last year's plan and add 5%. Because we know that will keep us in a job and probably get us a pay rise. But we have no more time. You're like, I'm time poor, and I'm busy, and I'm on my phone 24 by 7. And you're like, I only need 5%. And then if I could just get through this month, if I could just get through this quarter, if I could just get through this year, everything will be fine. You never do. And so organizations are just manifestations of people. Like we forget that. It's like, oh, this organization is bureaucratic. No, it's not. The people are. Oh, this organization's got a lot of process. No, it hasn't. A person created that. And so when you think about that at an organizational level, that unlearning becomes quite powerful because it's the what are the things we're going to stop, which are often the barriers to innovation or creativity or curiosity. And the reason I mention that is, in my experience, most organizations spend the time dangling the carrot, like here's why innovation's awesome, but they don't take the blockade out of the way that's stopping you doing it. You already know it's awesome. You're really clever people. Like, there's not many people I meet who go, innovation's a terrible idea, waste of time, never works. They want to do it, but there's barriers in the way. So I think the first thing to do is like, go and seek those things out, acknowledge them, and do your thing to remove them. And I think if you start with that approach, what you end up doing is these really small experiments that don't look huge, but they start to build momentum over time. And we, we learn more from the things that we screw up. Um, we have a thing now called Fuck Up Fridays, where in our team meetings every couple of weeks, uh, you, you, you come in, you've got to bring your drink with you, either a bottle or a glass, and you've got to share your story, right? And it can't be a, oh, I worked really hard this week. Like, you know, my, like, like those people that you interview and you say, what's your weakness? And they're like, I just worked too hard, <laughs> right? It's not, it's not one of those ironic fuck-ups. It's not really a fuck-up. It's a real thing. And you're like, I tried this thing. Here's what I thought would happen. And here's the mistake I made. And everyone goes, cheers. You fucked up. And you're like, yeah, I did. Right? Yeah, yeah, I did. By sharing that, 20 people around me have learned about the thing I experimented with. They learned why I experimented with it. They won't make the same mistake. And often someone will go, hey, I tried to solve a similar problem. And here's what I tried. You might want to try that. So we're, like, we're sharing laterally as peers. Um, as long as you don't fire anyone, that's cool. And as long as you don't go seeking failures, that's the thing I like to point out. Because people are like, we're going to start doing more of that. I'm like, well, there's a balance. You don't actually want to be a failure. You want to experiment uh, and learn fast. So they're the things that I think in the corporate world you need to to try. And then avoid the myths. I love the myths of innovation. Uh, Innovation labs. We all know that an innovation room brings out the best in everyone. Nothing like a whiteboard chalkboard and some post-it notes make me feel creative uh, or patronized. Um, And then the other one is, is kind of the most senior people do the innovation, which is flawed. Right, Our best ideas often come from our graduates, our new starters, people from other industries, some random, random tangents, and not from the people that are indoctrinated into your way of doing things. They are the most conservative and come up with the worst, often very dated and barely incremental or iterative ideas. But they're so passionate about them. they're like, here's the thing. I've had it in my drawer for three years. Every time there's an innovation event, they're like, hey, I've got this idea. You're like, oh, here we go again. But then they get to a level where it gets sanctioned because power becomes the decision rather than actually how credible is the idea and what can we learn. So avoiding the myths and then unlearning and, and trying small experiments. So uh, a meta-level purpose and vision have always been, again, similar stories. We've always had it. Uh, So we've not had to come from a a certain way and and, and evolve to that. Um, Our our mission is to unleash the potential in all teams. But we also have two founders who are very philanthropic in their mindset and their approach. So from the inception of Atlassian, Scott and Mike started a 1% movement where they donate 1% of profits, uh, equity, revenue, and product, and staff time to charitable causes. And the great news was, and and Scott you know, Scott is a, a very kind of uh, conscious leader in terms of finances. And he tells the story, quite funny, that 1% of nothing was nothing when they first started. So like, hey, this is cool. We're giving away 1%. We haven't got anything. Now we're a $12 billion listed company uh, with, with products and customers all over the world. Like, what, that 1% is significantly bigger, but it's still 1%. And so that enables us as an organization to have this belief and this desire to leave the world in a better place than we, we found it. On an individual level, for me, um, the most impactful thing is, isn't is the 1% donations that Atlassian gives. I, I like those. They, they give me a fuzzy feeling. But the thing that actually resonates with me is the five days I get each year. So I've been uh, using that more recently uh, to work with social enterprises to help accelerate them, uh, which is nothing to do with Atlassian, nothing to do with our technology, our products. It's just me as a human saying, this company's given me five days paid leave. I can use that to catch up on my work, which would be really sad. I could use it to go on holiday, which I probably need one, but I get holiday leave for that. Or I can use it to have positive impact. So that's the kind of meta level for me. At a more business kind of tactical level, we over-communicate our strategy. So we have a thing called a VTFM, Vision, Themes, Focus Areas and Measures. We communicate that, we blog it, we share it on a page, it's on our intranet, we have town halls, We talk about it regularly, we score it honestly, we debate it, we discuss it, but that's an organisational level uh, kind of vision, mission, like what what are we going after? One of the things that we do in there, which actually helps with purpose, is as well as saying what we are going after, we talk about the things we're not going after, the popular misconceptions. Uh, It's amazing how much secret squirrel work can go on around a large organisation, right, the shadow work that you never know of. And so to kind of eliminate that, instead of going shooting those people, we say, you might think that as a company, we're going after these things, but we're not. We're actually focusing on these. And here's why. So we we over-enforce and reinforce the why. One of the reasons there is, uh, it's a good parlay, actually. Uh, A few years ago, we created this thing called the Atlassian Team Playbook. We're about 2,500 people. We're 420 teams. Those 420 teams needed guardrails for how to work. So we created a playbook. In there is this thing called a health monitor, how teams assess their health as a team. Nothing to do with technology, just human to human. In the first 100 sessions, the number one area we were struggling with was shared understanding. Why are we doing what we're doing? Teams knew what they were doing, but not why. And what was happening was they were shipping on a Friday, and they were celebrating because they shipped something on a Friday, which was never the intended outcome. We're like, is that thing being used? And they're like, I don't know, but we shipped on Friday. How cool is that? We're gonna have a party, we're gonna drink beer and play card games. And I'm like, but, but what's the outcome? And so over time, we'd lost focus on that why. So we've now swung that pendulum back to say, if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, you become insular, which is bad because you don't care about the customer, you care about your own KPIs, you become very insular. You never course correct because you stop listening and you start celebrating shipping regardless rather than delivering an outcome. So for us, that emphasis on why is essential for us to actually have autonomous teams. Otherwise, you have lots of teams that are not autonomous. They are highly reliant on the person above them to give them direction, and that person above them often doesn't have the right purview of the customer and of the organisation. So we we keep on talking about it. We do a values interview for every single candidate. Um, We don't believe in culture check. Uh, Culture checks, for me, um, mean you hire people that are like the ones you've got, Uh, go to any is there any consultants here from like any big really okay go to any consulting firm within a hundred meter radius and, and you see people going up and down the lift they all look the same you're like if, if you all bought the same suit shirt tie combination um similarly in this space you all look the same we're like we're all like yeah we're all cool because we're trendy kids um but they, they all look the same because they're hiring for culture right and when you hire for culture and you get culture fit you actually start to, to bring in that. So, so, we used to do that and it was bad. So, we flipped it to values. So, we have values like don't foot the customer, open company, no bullshit, be the change you seek, yeah, play as a team. And so, what we say to people is you are coming in for a values interview. That values interview is done by someone that will not be a member of your team. So, they're independent to you being hired. They have no skin in the game other than saying, will you help promote and provoke Atlassian to the next level? And so, what you find is if you take something like be the change you seek, it's suddenly, it's not a cultural thing because everyone's going to approach that a different way. All I'm listening for when they tell me their story is do they understand what be the change you seek means? Have they got it within them? And what would they do? How would they, how would they do that? And the reason we do that, I'll give the, uh, the analogy. If you imagine back in the day, the classified ads, right? If you wanted to date someone and you were like pre-Tinder, right? You would put these ads in the paper and, and everyone was looking for someone with a good sense of humor. Right, there is no one on the planet that says, I really want to be with someone who's miserable, <laughs> like, who just brings me down. Right? Everyone is looking for someone with a good sense of humor, but we're all looking for someone different. And it's the same for Atlassian. We want people that are a values fit, but everyone's different. And so part of the challenge we're trying to do there is not, are we screening them for values? Are they screening us? Because the last thing I want to do is to hire someone who thinks they want to work somewhere like Atlassian and then gets in and drowns. Because many people can't handle autonomy. Many people can't handle self-service, because they've grown up in environments where the leader, command and control, has told them what to do. And they think they want that, but then when they get it, they panic. They're like, what do you want me to do today? And I'm like, go and build your own adventure. And they're like, okay. I'll wait to be told. And you're like, no, there, there is no telling. So I think we've just got to accept it's not that Atlassian is the right work environment. It's that there's many work environments and many types of people. And the thing we need to do is to match the right people in the right environment. And I think that's a two-way discussion. Um, I think we have as many people self-select out of our interview process because they realize, yeah, we're a fun place, but we're not a good fit for them. Interestingly, the values interviewer has veto rights. So you can be technically awesome, but if you're a jerk, you're not getting the job. And that, that has been very important for us because the temptation to hire the technical genius is really high. But when you realize the negative impact that technical genius can have, no bueno, not going to do it. So we are, we are ruthless. The, the values interviewer can just go, nope. It's a lot of this and not a lot of that, if I'm deadly honest. We, we are very, um, our, there's not many values interviewers at in Atlassian. We, we, keep, we keep a, a relatively sm- a smallish number of people. They have to be people that we believe genuinely demonstrate our values and evolve them on a daily basis and they actively contribute to them one of the things we do is we try and do benefit of the doubt because the last thing you want to do is to be punitive Um, a lot of the time it's hard to tell if someone's a product of their environment and whether they can change or not the big one for me is you can normally just tell which is hard because it's one of those things whereby i'll give you an example of what i did the other week right because the person can remain nameless they were talking about be the change you seek. So the, the question I said to them was, I'm not going to tell you which value to talk about. What's your favorite value? They're like, be the change you seek. I'm like, awesome. What does that mean to you? Like, there is no wrong answer in theory you can give to that, except they did because they were like, well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something from like a Buddha, and I was like, no, what does it mean to you? Like, how would this manifest with you? They then spent 10 minutes telling me about how they couldn't change anything in their previous organization because they weren't allowed. I was like, okay, cool. So I'm going to give you that freedom. What are you going to do? And they're like, you know, in my last place, I couldn't do this, and I got punished for that. Like, the third time they told that story, I'm like, I've just given you freedom now. I've I've given you three bits of permission, which is hard, because here, I'm not going to give you any permission. I'm just going to ask you to beg for forgiveness. And so even with permission, you're struggling. I don't know how you're going to survive in that environment. And so the example they gave me was around be the changes here about how they get people to change and how they use drawings and sketches and stories. And I'm like, brilliant, here's a pen, tell me a story. And they held the pen and sat opposite me and told me the story. And so what you can quickly realize is it's very easy to to explain what you would like to be like and what you think you should be like, but when you're given the freedom to do that, you should probably just do it. And so I get lots of people that will tell me an answer about how they work, but when I give them the opportunity to do that, they can't. And that for me says, if you can't do that now with permission and guidance, when I'm not here, and when you are given autonomy and freedom, what are you gonna do? And so I'm a firm believer we can teach a lot of that, but if it's not in there, and the passion to kind of explore and try that isn't there, that's a lot harder to create. I mean, in in Australia, we have a six month probationary period, six month probationary period. Um, It's it's the minority that don't, don't get through, uh, you tend to know within the first four or six weeks, you don't, it's very rare, we need the six months because we we are, we are an autonomous environment. It, it is a bit of a fire hose when you get in there, right? It, it is full- on, and people either sink or swim. And the ones that can genuinely do it will work with their peers, uh, will will work laterally and communicate with people, will listen, will be curious and learn. They, they consume the fire hose and they grow with it, right? You can just see them navigate and their shoulders lift, their confidence grows. And the ones that don't, it's a very different direction. And so we try and support those people to go, let's give you, let's restart. Like maybe maybe you had good intentions, but you went down the wrong path. Let's give you a restart. And we try and use those six months as useful as possible. I think the ones that definitely don't make it to the six months, either self-select out by three. I mean, we're in a buoyant job market. Like if. We don't pay the highest, so you're not going to stick with us for the money. We give you really good, enjoyable work. You get mastery. You get to work with smart people. There's a whole lot of advantages to working there, but you're not going to stick around just for the cash, right? We're not a bank paying five times the average. And so people will self-select out and go, actually, I can go and work somewhere else and chill, right? I can go and put my slippers on and be relaxed over here and do the same job, and then twice as much, they will go and do that. The ones that want to grow, evolve, become a master, learn new things, be experimental, they'll stick around. So it tends to be self-selection. If not, we politely show them where the door is and take their passes off them. Yeah. Um, so the first thing we did was we realized that um, getting a whole lot of uh, alpha white males to solve diversity could be classed as ironic. Uh, it was, it's a, big, it's a big admission, big admission for a room full of... with uh, it's Some of the organisations I go to where you see these, sorry for anyone who's a 55-year-old white guy, but uh, rooms full of 55-year-old white guys uh, with white beards going, hmm, diversity, we, we can solve that through this. And you're like, yeah, you're probably... You're sympathising when you should be empathising. Um, for, for us, the first thing we did was we hired an amazing head of diversity and inclusion. Um, she's an absolute rock star. She pushes us, provokes us, challenges us, makes me feel very uncomfortable on a regular basis, but does so all for good, right? Uh, And so that was the first thing we did. We had to do that to just lift our overall awareness, our education, our understanding, a whole lot of cognitive biases that we had that aren't malicious, but you're like, shit, I never realized that I did that until you told me. Um, And so that's just lifted our general awareness. The next thing, uh, this is probably more recently, that we did was we had to acknowledge that diversity makes inclusion harder. Um, really weird conversation to help people because they're like, it's D&I, right? Diversity and inclusion go together. And you're like, no. If you don't hire diverse people, you don't have to bother with inclusion because we're all the same. Fuck it, right? It's brilliant. (laughs) We all want to go to the pub at four o'clock and drink Stella. That's a lot easier. So let's just not hire anyone that doesn't drink Stella. And you're like, actually, that's not going to create a great business model or a great customer satisfaction. And so we had to acknowledge that, actually, if we hire for diversity, we're making the inclusion part harder. So we need to focus as much effort on that. Um, And then the third piece, which in the tech industry has been the most controversial and the most fun, uh, is we decided a few years ago to roll the dice. So when we do our uh, diversity reporting on a gender level, we don't do it uh, as an organization. So every other company says, we are 45% female. Uh, We were 40%, now we're 45. Uh, We're really good. And we were like, you know, screw that, because they're all in HR and marketing, right? So you're lying. Yeah, Yeah. so we do it at a team level. So we report uh, diversity at a team level. So um, that's enabled us to laser focus in on R&D, certainly in engineering. Um, In design and product management, we've always had a good mix. Uh, And so we've just had to amplify what we already had there. With engineering, it was back to grassroots. We spent a lot of time, certainly in my time there in the last five years, uh, bringing kids through from school age. Uh, that's had a massive impact, getting them to understand um, anyone who's a parent here, um, it's not the kids that we've had problems with, it's the parents. So a few years ago, uh, we did an experiment, we did a wine and cheese night, got the parents in for the graduates, see these parents walking around going, oh, you're a real business, oh, this is lovely, oh, I like this, and you're like, like what? And they're like, oh, we've been trying to convince Jacinta to go and be an accountant or a lawyer, because... We wanted to have a real job. And you're like, that's the job that won't exist in a few years. And so what we've realized is that the rate of change itself is inflected. And because of that, we've got a generation of people advising kids to do what they should have done 20, 30 years ago, which is no longer relevant. Um, and it's, it's a hard challenge because I assume as a parent, I'm not one, but I assume as a parent you want the best. So you're doing it for good. But actually you're saying you should go and become a, a chartered accountant because you'll have a job for life when actually that's not going to be a job for life because that's the, one of the most uh, susceptible to automation, uh, robotics, and AI. So I think the, the challenge for us in, in diversity is how do we get the right proxies? That's why we look at cognitive diversity. What we found, if we over-focus on gender, race, religion, anything else, it becomes very tokenist. When actually, um, and I, had a, a, I can't give myself the credit for this, I was working with someone a few weeks ago, um, uh, female, female, Uh, Asian descent and she's like in theory like we were sat having a coffee she's like anyone looking at us is going to go diverse she's like me and you are so fucking similar like we are the least diverse people visually we scored two of the two really good scores you're a bloke I'm not right you're a white guy I'm not like like we're winning on the on the tokenist side on the cognitive diversity naught out of five and so for me I I go in I, I seek People that have a different mindset every time I have an idea because I want them to rip it to shreds to enable my idea to get better. That's involved me as a leader having to let go of being right. Uh, and diversity has helped me do that through, through surrounding myself by people that have very different mindsets, very different views. But it, it takes a lot of effort to turn that from a tax to an investment because it feels like a tax. It really, yeah. So, so not, um, we, we haven't got a specific program for that. That said, if I look at our. Our spectrum internally. It's a, it's a spectrum. Um, I, I learned the hard way when I started that I was, it was the first time I'd ever joined an, an organization and I was the outsider. Like I was the edge case. I remember walking around at last and going, this is weird. Like I, I think I'm the most normal person in the world. And they're looking at me like I'm some kind of freakoid. Um, the, I remember the first time I was sat with a whole group of engineers and, and they weren't mean to me, but they genuinely treated me like shit for about three months. Um, because I wasn't one of them, I spoke a different language. Every time I asked a question, they're like, what are you, what are you even saying? Um, and then one of them was like, um, we're going playing magic at lunchtime, do you want to join? And I was like, what on earth is magic? So, <laughs> Magic the Gathering, heard of it? So they gather round at lunchtime in like, complete silence and play these card games that are strategy games. And then you can buy cards on eBay and there are certain flowers, and I'm like, this is wow. And, and I thought, every, every, every time in life, I found jokes Jokes are my way of making friends. So I'd be like, who's gonna pull the rabbit out of the hat? And they're like, oh, you fucking idiot. Like, the, the more I try to acclimatize with them, the further away I got, until I finally confessed that I watched Monty Python and they're like, welcomed me. Um, I, I, became, I became one of them for a, for a millisecond. I think the, the thing for us is, we look at how people can contribute. And one of the things that we've had to learn, probably through experience rather than through any theory, is that you're always going to have, certainly in our engineering teams, you're always going to have a range. The thing that we try and do, and, and this has been hard, but we're, we're passionate about it, is we think the, the key to a successful and high-performing team is balance. So we try and avoid having engineering teams because an engineering team doesn't do anything. We, so, so teams for me aren't functions. Functions are weird labels that you get given to give you an identity, but they're not how work gets done. So what we have to do with our engineers is to say, for you to be successful, you need to find a way of working with a designer and a product manager. And they think and smell and feel a bit different than you. But that's okay. It's a good thing. How can we get you in an environment where you can contribute your best self and they can contribute their best self? Because if either of you has the power position, weird things happen. Like if the designer wins, we have beautiful products, but no one's building them because the engineers are going, fuck yeah, I'm not going to do that. If the engineer wins, they are technically brilliant, but no one needs them, right? And if the product manager wins, you end up with an infinite roadmap of features that are wonderful, that never get used, but like it looks good, right? It's the product that does a little bit of everything. So we need so we talk about the triad, those three coming together and how they combine viability, feasibility, and reliability to make our products awesome. But that is a tense relationship. Like it's not harmony. When you see them on the whiteboards, I was, I was showing a, a COO from one of the banks around our office the other week. And we walk around this corner and there's three people like yelling at each other on the whiteboard, like one shy of having each other in headlocks. And he's like, oh, that's awkward. I was like, no, that's cool. That's a, that's a good thing. I was like, if everyone sat there silently nodding, that's bad. Like passive aggressive agreement is boring. That's fun. They're bringing their best selves to work. Uh, that's something we constantly have to nurture so that they all feel that they can do that. The biggest way we found of doing that is storytelling. So we we have to give them the freedom, the space to do that, but that's not enough. So what we do is we have a a strong culture of blogging and actually sharing those stories of difference has been powerful. How do you share those? Because those are the ones that make us all learn and listen. So we have a, a transgender engineer who has told a wonderful series of stories about that experience. Now, there's no book I could read about that. And there's no way, even though I'm curious and keen to learn, there's no way I could acquire that knowledge and empathy myself. But Cara telling that story of the experience of pre and the change and the blogs and all the hassles that come with that. And you read that and you're like, holy fuck, I've got privilege. Like, sure, I've got it easy. But I'm not going to realize that when I wake up in the morning and make my coffee. And so those stories enable us to learn from each other and do so in a way that makes us appreciate the fact that we are all, all different, but that's a good thing. And that's where organizations, a lot of organizations concern me, because they go, you're all different, but as long as you work this way, like, I treat everyone the same, so that's fine. No, if you treat everyone the same, you probably treat them the way you want to be treated, which is your privilege and your view of the world. So I, I've had to learn, you know, as a... As a a relatively confident alpha male, I've had to learn a whole new style when I'm facilitating sessions at year because I never quite know what I've got in the room. So I've been using silence as my friend. I just sit, I'm like, I'm, I have to sit on my hands, otherwise I start talking, but I'm like, I'm, it's just here. Like, like, I want the introvert, I want, I want the person who's not comfortable to speak up to feel like they have a voice. And so we have to use different mediums, different techniques, but ultimately you're never going to do that if you've not got the base level understanding. And so for our belief is that if we, if we do that properly, we do the storytelling, we build an evolving, inclusive environment, people will want to work there and we will hire for those people because we have the mechanism rather than making it a program. And I think we learned from the unconscious bias training where the entire organization went through unconscious bias training and we're like, done that now, we're, now, we're not biased anymore. I'm like, no, 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 you still have it. Just because you know about it doesn't mean you don't have it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm a I'm a forty-year-old white guy now. So I'm in fifteen years, I'll be able to give you the actual answer. My 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 answer now is that um, I pick on fifty-five-year-old white guys on purpose because virtually every boardroom of every ASX company I go into, that's all I see, and it pisses me off. Right. Um, I, I did a blog the other week, which I got a whole lot of really angry white guys yelling at me. Um, where I talked to, uh, the the article was called "A Robot Won't Take Your Job." And then when you click through, it's like Peter, John, or David will, because 32% of the ASX 200 CEOs are called Peter, John, or David, which is more than there are women. And so I always always take the white guy question with a pinch of salt, because I'm like, here we are in our position of privilege, worrying about potentially sharing it. Um, For me, the thing I think about is how do we take age out of the equation, and how do we take white out of the equation? And the way I think about that, uh, I I steal a lot from the legendary Patty McCord, who is the chief uh, HR officer at Netflix, and she has a wonderful story about fully formed adults where she said, I don't give a shit how old you are. I care if you're a fully formed adult. And she says, I know plenty of 20-year-olds that are fully formed adults and plenty of 50-year-olds that aren't and vice versa. If you're a fully formed adult, you can be autonomous, you can be empowered because you understand the world around you, you have that kind of self-awareness. And so what I try and say is, how can you think about age not as a tenure thing, but as a vitality? So we've got a whole lot of 50, 60, I think our oldest developer is about 65, um, working with a whole lot of 18, 19, 20, 25-year-olds, right? Uh, we, we truly have five generations in our workplace, and we've done that on purpose. Um, the, the, the 60, 65-year-olds they have wisdom and knowledge that those 20-year-olds can't buy. But those 20-year-olds have curiosity. Like They genuinely do not see the barriers in front of them and plow through them with epic proportions. Whereas the 6 year olds has gone, well, you can't do that. I mean, we all know that wouldn't work. And then they plow through it. And you're like, "Ah, oh, that's really good. It did work. However, you don't know how to finish that thing. My wisdom and experience can help you finish it. So what we say is, if you're a fully formed adult, you're always learning. You don't quote how many years' experience you've got as being, I've got 20 years' experience, I've got 30 years' experience. Because if you've done the same thing for 30 years, that's miserable. But if you've done 30 things differently and you've done one year on each, I'll hire you for that. And so how do you keep reinventing yourself? The reason that becomes an issue for me is I see this weird cliff. If you think about organisations as org charts and your desire is to climb up the ladder and grow, you get to this cliff of comfort where you're like, well, I'm done now. I'm a senior leader, in the US, I'm a senior, junior VP, head of, right, however many words you can throw in there. And so you get to this level where you're like, right, I've got my desk, got my parking space, got my UGG boots, I'm comfy, I can just rest up now, all I need to do is to decree my wisdom on the peasants around me, and the world will be a wonderful place. And yet the thing that got you there wasn't that. So I think we owe it to ourselves as leaders to say, how can I be the best leader, For me, the best leader is the one that's creating leaders that create leaders. And that's a selfless act, servant leadership. And how do I do that by continually growing, unlearning, developing, challenging myself, uh, working with smart people, evolving my IQ and EQ? How can I do all those things to be a great leader? Like I've learned more in the last year than the previous 10. And it's exhausting, but way more fulfilling than any dollar in the bank. And so I think as leaders, we have to keep that kind of appetite for growing and learning and realize that. We're all kind of uh, children in adults bodies and tapping into that inner child, whatever your age, can be a very powerful thing. So we use play an awful lot in work because play doesn't care about age. Play cares about having fun to achieve an outcome. And so we use play at all levels to try and sort of gamify and have a bit of fun with what we do.
0: Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit FlorenceGuild.com.